Hi, I'm Harriet Smith and welcome to the Dietitian Cafe where we'll be discussing the world of nutrition and dietetics from studying to research, clinical to industry and the NHS to freelancing. Today we have with us Sophie Medlin. Sophie is a consultant dietitian in London with expertise in gastrointestinal and colorectal health. She's worked in acute hospitals specialising in gastrointestinal diseases before moving into academia, where she worked as a lecturer at King's College London. More recently, Sophie has turned to freelance work. She recently founded City Dietitians with Dr Nicola Guess. Sophie is a go-to spokesperson for media when it comes to evidence-based nutrition. She regularly features in print, broadcast and on social media. Sophie also works as a consultant in product development, advising companies on the manufacturing of products, and she enjoys applying her academic research skills in the commercial sector. Hello, Sophie. Thank Hi, you Harriet. for coming today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that introduction. That's great. And um, I think we're just going to head on straight on in, and perhaps you can tell our listeners um, how have you ended up as a dietitian? Yeah, of course. So I was a really strange 15 year old who knew this is what I wanted to do. So I was very lucky in that sense. Um, I studied uh, catering at GCSE and I was good at sciences. And my catering teacher said, have you looked at professions in nutrition? I think you'd really like it. Um, And I looked and I thought, well, do I want to be a nutritionist or a dietitian at the time? Just like everyone else, I didn't know the difference. And I thought, well, if I become a nutritionist, I can't be a dietitian. But if I'm a dietitian, I can be both. And that feels like the right thing to do. So I studied hard and got in and I've loved it ever since. I was very lucky. So I worked um, initially, well, my first job was in Birmingham. So I went straight from Devon up to Birmingham, which was a bit of a culture shock, but (laughs) really amazing experience. So I was there for a while, um, specialising in elderly medicine and nutrition support. So we had a really great um, Parkinson's disease clinic there and some really specialist stuff going on. So it was really nice nutrition support, kind of foundations in nutrition Mm -hmm. support. I then worked, so as with lots of dietitians, my B placement, um, so my placement to the hospital called me up and said, will you come and do a band six job for us? So then I did head and neck and nutrition support um, as a maternity cover post at my uh, B placement job. And then I was like, decided I want to be in Devon with my partner at the time and moved down to Torbay. So I worked in the tertiary referral centre for intestinal failure at Torbay for, as my last clinical post. And there, <laughs> I have always thought that I wanted to get into academia and um, my university tutor was visiting the department and I sort of said to her, you know, I kind of got to the top of where I could get to in that department in the NHS and I didn't really want to move because I'd bought a house and whatever else. And um, she, I said, you know, how do I get into academia? And she said, well, actually we've got a maternity cover post coming up. I'd done some writing at that time, so I'd done some run, written some research articles and some um, editorial work. Um, on intestinal failure and nutrition support Um, so I'd kind of got a bit of academic stuff that I'd done postgraduate at postgraduate level Um, and she said come and interview so I did the part-time lecturing post for two years uh, for a year sorry then I did full-time lecturing at Plymouth University for two years and then I got the job at King so I was there for three years and then I quit that and I worked for myself. Wow, that's a very very good uh, but quick overview of sort of from graduating to where you are today. So just going back, um, obviously your your one of your main interests is in gastrointestinal conditions. Mm. So where where did that interest stem from during your clinical work? So um, working in the tertiary referral centre, I had the opportunity to work with some really really specialist nurses and in a very um, incredibly well set up and high functioning team. So Torbay, funnily enough, had one of the first nutrition support teams in the country. 
very well geared up towards managing complex colorectal conditions. And for me, whenever I'm working in a situation where I feel like we're making a massive difference and we're having having a real impact on people's lives, it feels very, very worthwhile to me. Um, the stoma care nurses there were amazing. And they asked me to speak at a couple of conferences and things with stoma care companies. Um, and I sort of built up my, not only my interest in in the sort of nutritional management of stomas but also my name in that area and my kind of value to that part of the the profession I guess and um, yeah I feel very privileged to work so I still see the vast majority of my patients are complex colorectal patients who've had surgery recently or a long time ago or who are just about to go for surgery and patients who have stomas who don't have stomas Um, and then obviously I see IBS patients as well but the majority of my work is is colorectal still in private practice and people travel a long way to come and see me and feel very lucky to to have a place in that and really the the crux of that for me is that you can make such a difference to people's quality of life Mm. so Mm. everyone takes their rectal function for granted until it goes wrong Mm. and then the impact of that on people's day-to-day lives and their ability to go to work and function normally and feel confident and comfortable to um I saw a patient yesterday who um had started a, a class an art class that she wanted to do for 10 years and then realized she just couldn't stand up for that period of time because she developed such bad bloating and, and cramping and difficulties and hopefully we can help her to get into a position where she can do the things that she wants to do and enjoy her life to the full and I feel really confident that I can help her which to me is such a privilege yeah it must be very rewarding yeah I feel very lucky and you've been working alongside the charity Colostomy, <clears throat> excuse me, Colostomy UK. Yeah, I've worked with them for a long time. I've worked with them for probably the best part of ten years now, and they're lovely people to work with. I really love working with the charity sector. Um, I also work with the Iliostomy Association and a couple of the other stoma charities and companies, which is yeah again something I really enjoy. And can you tell us a bit more about what that work with the charities involves? Is it delivering talks, helping patients one to one? So almost entirely, it is developing literature and working on campaigns with them. Um, And then I do go around as far as I can to stoma support groups and do talks with them. So that's completely voluntary, um, which makes it kind of challenging in some ways because, you know, I I love doing it. I'm very happy to do it where I can, but it means that I often, not often, sometimes I have to say no and that's difficult Mm, because... I would like to be able to help as many people as possible. And that's one of the difficulties when you do go freelance, sort of working out what, you know, your time schedule and what, what work you can and can't take on. And we'll talk about that later on in the podcast. Mm. Um, so earlier you mentioned that you've been involved with doing some research. Can you tell me more about what, what your research was in? Yeah, so um, still unpublished to my great shame, but we did a great research trial when I was at King's, um, which was a survey of people with stomas. Um, we've got some amazing data on food-related quality of life and the nutritional imp- compl- nutritional consequences of stoma formation. So there's a massive issue within the stoma community that people are basically, often their life has been saved by having a stoma and they're sort of sent off on their way just to continue to manage that. So uh, having a stoma might mean that you can't eat very much in the way of fruit and vegetables because of the symptoms that you get from your stoma. It might mean that you rely a lot on refined carbohydrates, for example. And obviously those are dietary patterns that we know are associated with higher risk of things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. But to date, that population are really underserved in terms of looking at their secondary outcomes following stoma formation. Um, And I feel very passionately that actually there are lots of fruits and vegetables that people with a stoma can eat 
and almost everyone could get to a balanced diet. But the dietary advice they get at the moment is usually from stoma care nurses and they're absolutely doing their best, but very often they're focused on stoma function. So it might be that a patient will come and say, well, I can't eat peas because I get wind and that might be the only vegetable they eat. And the stoma care nurse will say, well, just don't eat peas then. Mm. And then that list becomes longer and longer. And then they end up having really just a very few foods on their list so that they can tolerate well and maintain good stoma function. Um, and obviously the nutritional adequacy of that is, is not good. So what were the main findings from your research in terms of the nutritional consequences? So we've got lots of interesting stuff. So absolutely the stoma population are massively disadvantaged in terms of the quality of their diet. What needs to be done in terms of taking that data forward is comparing that to the general public as opposed to uh, just looking and comparing it to dietary guidelines, which is where we kind of are now with it. Um, so certainly the dietary patterns that we see associated with the stone population are that there's very little in the way of fruit and vegetables, very much an over-reliance on refined carbohydrates, as we were talking about before, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and certainly a pattern of eating that's associated with long-term disease risk. Okay. And... Um sort of linking that in with your your lecturing um is gastrointestinal conditions an area that you have been lecturing students on at Plymouth and King's College so certainly at Plymouth the setup at King's is slightly different and Mm. also there's some incredible big names in gastro research at King's so um in that sense I was sidelined a little bit in terms of those expertise which is completely understandable when you're talking about people like Kevin Whelan and Miranda Loma um so Mainly, my work in terms of academia has been teaching about the application of dietetics, so the application of the science of nutrition to medical cases, so to dietet- to making nutrition into dietetics, if you like, so the practical side of dietetics, um, as opposed to theoretical nutrition. There's been quite a lot of changes in um, the, the dietetics degrees at the moment. How do you think um, the profession is moving forward in terms of training future dietitians? I think there's lots of challenges. I think it's a really tricky um, marketplace at the moment. Um, as people probably be aware, the NHS paid for tuition fees up until about, um, I think it's about three years ago now. So with the withdrawal of tuition fees, then dietetic education becomes much more commercial. Um, and it means that we need to fill seats and need to take money in a different way than we had to think about before. Um which could potentially mean that we might be thinking about compromising on standards in terms of people that come through. Um, Certainly the type of people that we were training when I left academia were very different to when I started in academia and certainly different to when I was on the degree programmes and training students in the NHS. So it's a very different world, but it's a different market. And I think one of the things to think about is that when I trained, so 13, 14 years ago when I graduated, everyone was saying oh it's a great field to get into it's just about to get really really exciting and really interesting and in my head then I was thinking oh there's going to be loads more funding for dietitians in the NHS this is great we're going to have loads more posts and people are going to feel very positively about dietitians and actually what kind of happened was as everyone will know it exploded in a completely other direction and the general public were very interested in nutrition but those people who were meeting that need were people who were sort of influencers or people who already had a big name who had no credibility, no credentials, no education in nutrition, often. Uh, um, So I think now it is difficult that we're training a different type of student, but ultimately we need to meet a commercial need as well as a a healthcare need. And sometimes change is the right thing, and certainly dietetics could do with a bit of a shake-up. So I feel like there's lots of positivity to come through, but it it is a challenge, and it's um, 
our brave new world, really. And certainly one of the biggest challenges has been the rise in unregulated nutrition advice, particularly on social media. Yep. And I know you've got a big presence on social media. You've done lots of work um, with newspapers and on television. Can you tell me more about why you feel it's important for health professionals to have a voice on those platforms? Yes. So I started that stuff just as a bit of a sideline to academia, really. So I um, missed kind of having patient contact when I started in academia. So I started doing a little bit of freelance stuff and and getting a bit more involved in social media stuff just because I saw the nonsense that was out there. And I feel like it was worse then than it is now, if less common. So there's less of it, but worse that was out there. Um, and so I just started trying to build up a little bit of a presence and try and get some engagement, which um, has taken a long time to take off to anything that's significant, really, I guess. Um, I think it's so important that dietitians have a presence and regulated nutrition professionals have a presence so that we can try and collectively drown out some of the noise from those who are unregulated and those who don't have any responsibility to the people that they're sending messages to. Because as you know, there's so much dangerous advice out there that causes so much harm. And the louder we speak and the more collect- the stronger we speak collectively, the more likely we are to have a-, a joint presence and drown out some of the, you know, Kim Kardashian appetite suppressant lollipop nonsense that is really the biggest voice still on social media. But together, mm. if we if we you know come together and talk, I think we can have more of a presence, more of a voice. And can you perhaps give our listeners some examples of um, some of campaigns that you've done on social media to challenge or call out some of that unregulated advice? So one of the things that I think we need to do is have some kind of um, recognition of healthcare professional status on social media, whether that's like a green influencer type tick. Mm, Like the ones that celebrities get. Exactly. But for healthcare professionals. And the reason that I think that's important is that there is, uh, I, there are consequences to me giving poor advice. So um, Kim Kardashian can say whatever she likes. Um, lots of other big names like Deliciously Ella and all of these people can say whatever they want in nutrition. And there's no comeback to them if and when that advice is inappropriate or wrong or causes harm. Whereas for me and you, Harriet, and anyone else who's a registered healthcare professional, um, if I say something wrong and it causes harm then there are consequences on me for that misinformation. So if someone goes off and becomes very anemic because I've told the whole world to go vegan, then ultimately there are consequences on me for that. So I think some recognition of that. Um, It's not a perfect system, but there are opportunities to try and um, make things better and help the public to get advice from from people who are more likely to be providing safe advice because their career depends on it Mm -hmm. so I've done a bit of work around that um I've certainly had quite a big voice not necessarily willingly in the debate about whether veganism is the right thing on mass in the in the media because you got trolled on twitter at one point from that is that I had a very very hard time yes not the most (laughs) experiences in your dietetic career probably no it was very difficult and it came when I was having a really hard time in my personal life as well Mm. which was unfortunate um but ultimately I think it probably did give me a bit of a voice it taught me a lot of resilience in terms of how you cope with people saying you're wrong online because in nutrition whatever you say someone will say you're wrong Mm. um Mm. you know if you say eat more vegetables the carnival community will say they'll just rot in your gut and give you bowel cancer eskimos don't eat vegetables you don't need vegetables if you say eat more vegetables or if you say eat less vegetables then you're wrong on another like plane there's no unfortunately 
even the most sort of balanced advice can get someone back, someone's back up because nutrition is so polarised online. So having those kinds of experiences teaches you resilience. It teaches you, uh, it, it makes you get a team around you of people who you trust and who can say, yeah, you're, no, you're fine. That's fine. What you said is correct. Because sometimes it's easy to doubt yourself. Mm. And I think the, so there will be so many dietitians and nutritionists who have tried to say things online and have a presence and have been shouted down and have felt attacked and bullied. And I know that happens all the time. But if we come together and support each other, then we can still have that voice. And certainly when that happened to me, um, and whenever anything like that happens to me, I'm lucky enough to have a group of people who will come to my defence. And often I don't have to say anything now because yeah. other yeah. dietitians or nutrition professionals will have my back. And I really appreciate that and value that. Yeah, and it's particularly important now you're a freelance dietitian, of course, having that support network around you when you don't necessarily have um, you know, colleagues in an office that you can lean on for that support. Yeah, for sure. No, I feel very, I'm very lucky, partly because I've been in the profession for so long, but I do feel very supported by my nutrition colleagues and they're a big part of my social life and my general life. So that's important to me. So that brings us nicely onto your freelance work. Mm -hmm. So um, less than a year ago, is it, that you decided to go freelance? Yeah, so So I've always um, maintained some freelance work while I was working in academia. Again, just because I really love seeing patients and I didn't feel necessarily like a real dietitian when I was just lecturing. Mm. And I then probably... So I was getting to a point in my career where I was trying to decide whether I wanted to apply for big research funding and do my PhD and kind of progress in academia or explore some other options and decide what I wanted to do. And interestingly, I'd recently been diagnosed with dyslexia and dyspraxia. So I, because I was struggling in my academic work, just writing timetables and things that should be, you know, general admin work that should be straightforward, but I just couldn't... um, do it and it was so frustrating to me and I felt like I was bad at my job and it was you know, really getting to my me in terms of my self-esteem so my mentor at the time said why don't you get tested and I did and then I, so yes yeah, so at this point where I was like well am I gonna probably flog myself to try and get a PhD when actually that's gonna be really really hard for me or shall I explore some of these other freelance and consultancy opportunities that I'm getting and media work and things like that and I made the decision to go down the path of um, to do the things that I'm actually good at, which is hopefully science communication and those kinds of things, as opposed to looking at spreadsheets all day and analysing data. And yes, yeah, so that was probably around March time, two years ago. So I sort of pushed a little bit harder in that direction, opened up some doors, took on a couple of contracts and worked from six o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night for the best part of a year, built up the business, got a bit of money in the bank and yeah, quit Kings in October and left in February last, this year. This year, yeah. So it's not quite been a year, but how how have you found um, the last few months since you have gone fully freelance? Mm, so nice, thank you. I'm having a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> Drinking coffees all day, getting your nails done. I wish, I wish. No, it's been super busy and... I feel very grateful that it is busy. Um, I've recently discovered that my work-life balance is absolutely terrible. Um, So I guess in terms of freelancing, it's important, I think, that that you've got some kind of foundations in terms of contracts. So when I left, I had a couple of contracts in place already, which was super helpful. Um, And luckily, my clinic work has always been there because of um, my speciality, I guess. One thing I would say about freelance work is that 
um, clinics won't sustain you financially mm. unless mm. you want to see five patients a day every day, which is one difficult to get into clinic. So mm. making sure you get enough people is hard, but two is pretty exhausting. Um, so actually having contracts, consultancy contracts makes a massive difference to your quality of life and the amount of pressure you need to put yourself under. So just to clarify to our listeners, when you say having a few contracts lined up, I presume you mean having some long-term work guaranteed with um, corporate businesses and doing that alongside your more clinical work? Is that exactly correct? that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I work in product development for a couple of companies, which I really like. Um, I do things like um, content creation uh, and copy work. Um, but generally it's sort of product development or service development for different companies, mainly startups, but some more um, advanced companies. I also do some work in corporate wellness, so just taking on Hilton as a client and people like that. So there's some good mm. stuff happening. One thing that I would say as well, if people are thinking about going freelance, is that things take a lot longer than you might think they will. So I've you know, just started contracts that we were negotiating kind of this time last year. So things mm. take longer. So make sure you've got enough money in the bank to sustain you until things take off. Yeah, I think that's an important message. We, you know, particularly in the freelance world, don't talk about money very much. But if you're hoping for it to be a sustainable business venture, it is important to, as you say, build up slowly and build up some financial security so that you can afford to grow slowly but steadily. Yeah. And also I made a decision myself, partly because of the um, the learning difficulties diagnosis. I was just not going to do things that I don't feel that I'm very good at. Um, it's not good for me. It's not good for my head, not good for my soul. So that there are have been things that I've said no to, and it's been the right thing to do, but not necessarily the right thing to do financially. So I think those sorts of things are important. Are you willing to do anything, mm. or are you going to try and do things that you feel you can be really good at and that you enjoy? Yeah, and that goes back to what you were saying earlier about charity work. It's something you really enjoy doing, but you have to be strategic and and careful with your time and planning. And make sure, essentially, you don't take on more than you can deliver. Yeah, for sure. Which is always, a, you know, you will get lots of opportunities and lots of exciting things that come your way. Um, some of them will be paid and some of them won't be. Um, and it's learning to negotiate contracts, which is something we're never taught. But also definitely learning to manage time. So, for example, I'm taking Monday and Tuesday off next week. And that means that my Wednesday afternoon and Thursday and Friday are just completely back to back all day with a week's worth of work in three in two and a half days now obviously work-life balance is something that most freelancers do struggle with and you've admitted that yourself earlier mm-hmm. it's something I struggle with as well um but how do you think that you can try and achieve that better work-life balance whilst also growing a business I d- honestly Harry, I think that you just have to make sacrifices I'm not sure that you can grow a business and have that ideal balance really um I'm fortunate in some ways that I don't have a family and I don't have as in my own I have sisters and parents but I don't have my own family and I don't have a partner at the moment so in that sense I really just focus on myself and the business and I see my friends as my social life and I and I'm very privileged to have a very lovely social life um but I fit it in around everything else and it's not necessarily a good balance it's rare that I'm home before eight o'clock It's difficult, but but you've you've grown a very successful brand over not a long amount of time, and you're doing that with a team of other dietitians. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Can you tell us more about City Dietitians? Yeah, I'd love to. So my original business was Sophie Dietitian, which obviously isn't a scalable business name. <laughs> um, so 
I had always had in my head that we would do city dietitians. I would do city dietitians at some point. Um, and Dr. Nicola Guest, who is an incredible uh, diabetes researcher and clinician, she, we used to share, uh, sit next door to each other at King's in the office next door to each other. And we sort of started talking about opportunities in the freelance world and commercialising what we were doing. And I said, well, listen, this is what I've always wanted to do. Why don't we give it a go? So the way that she balances, so she balances me out beautifully in terms of her research credentials because she is just so credible. Um, and I do a good job, I hope, most of the time of the uh, entrepreneurial side of things and the commercial side of things. So coming together works really nicely. Um, we then have a team of other academic dietitians who have got generally got PhDs or are in advanced clinical practice. So we've got a dietitian from Great Ormond Street. We've got um, Dr. Adrian Brown from um, who's doing obesity research and Dr. Rona Antoni who does intermittent fasting research. Um, so it's a team where we can basically cover all bases. And one of the things that's really important to us as a team is that um, you see the right dietitian for the job. So for example, I don't see any patients with diabetes one because I don't care and two because I would do a bad job of it I don't know you know patients now can find out so much just by googling their condition if they're then paying to see somebody in my opinion they want to see somebody who's got some cutting-edge information to tell them who's really advanced and specialist in their field and can really do an amazing job of it so we're trying to provide sort of consultant dietitians at that level um, in specific conditions rather than me just having a go at seeing teenagers and weight management and diabetes and colorectal and all the other things that I do. So mm. I feel like it's um, coming together really nicely. People are kind of getting that message across. And um, yeah, I feel really proud of the work we're doing. I think it's difficult to make that realisation that at some point you do have to niche down and work out what your specialist area is and, like you said, what you're good at. Um, but it's great that you've grown such a, a collaborative team environment. Yeah, I feel really proud of it. And I feel like it's... Um, you know just growing all the time which is really positive and we're really rubbish I don't I can't afford to pay someone to do the social media side of things so I'm just kind of ignoring that for now but at the moment we're just building up you know um, keeping the website up to date and all those bits and pieces yeah yeah and I think that's the most important thing to make sure you've got new business leads coming in yeah the other fun stuff can come later yeah so um in terms of our listeners who are perhaps thinking about dabbling in the freelance dietetic world um do you have any advice to them? Because you've said earlier that just seeing patients is very difficult to sustain and not a lot of dietitians can make a, a full living just from doing that. Mm -hmm. So what other advice do you have to offer? So I would say um, if you're currently working in the NHS and you're thinking about trying to commercialise what you're doing, think about your transferable skills. So one of the things that I had never appreciated when I was working in the NHS was that prescribing TPN is quite a lot like trying to design a vitamin supplement in that you're thinking well I want this is my ideal thing of what I want but I'm going to have to go to the manufacturer and make some compromises on that and bring down some things and put up some other things because of how much of a balance there is and what we can fit in the supplement and all these kinds of things um, so those sorts of things are really interesting to me and it just feels very much like the kind of work that I did then in terms of those compromises and decisions that we make um, and I guess there's something in every individual speciality that you might do in the NHS, there is a commercial application. So thinking about those skills, thinking about which companies might want to work with you, how you could use them, how you could market them. Dietitians are very commercially interesting at the moment. Um, quite often companies will approach me and I'll say, 
I wonder whether actually you want to work with a nutritionist or a nutritional therapist because my regulation binds me in a particular way and I can't do some of the things that I would foresee you would want to do. And they say, no, we want a dietitian. We know that we want the best people. We know that dietitians are the, are the regulated people. So that message is coming across. So there are more and more opportunities. But I would say, yeah, try and find out what your niche is. Find out things you're interested in. Approach, don't be afraid to approach companies. Um, I don't do that at the moment, but I definitely would. And I know people do successfully just send companies messages and say, did you want any copy? I'm doing this. This is what I've got background in. Can I help you with anything? Um, it's often useful to have um, maybe take a two day a week contract somewhere. So whether that's a locum contract or whatever, so that you've got that financial security um, and then you can build things up around that. But yeah, the thing that's I think the other thing that I would, I guess my biggest lesson from this year is just everything takes time and don't bank on money until it's in your bank. <laughs> Make sure you sign contracts as well so that you get the money. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And learn, like, try and partner, not necessarily partner, but have someone around who you can ask for business advice because we learn nothing at university about business and yeah, commercial stuff. I think that's a real gap, um, particularly, as you say, the dietetic training is potentially changing in the future. It's yeah. becoming a bit more commercial anyway. So maybe that is something for them to think about, including some business skills within the degree. Yeah, yeah, or we set up a diploma in healthcare, business, something, strategy. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or, or if you're a student listening and you're at university, see if you've got a business society that you can maybe get involved yeah, with. Yeah, for sure. Entrepreneurial society or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've mentioned that you do a fair amount of work with brands. So our listeners might be interested in knowing how do the how do you find these opportunities? I know you're fortunate to have a name on, on social media, but... Um, you said you don't really reach out to companies because the work comes to you, but how are they How are they finding you? I don't always know, and I'm rubbish at finding out, but mostly I think that the majority is through word of mouth, and I think there's an important lesson there in that you, you know, we are a small profession, and if you do a good job of something, someone else will always be asking, oh, who did you work on for that? Who's your, who would you recommend for this? Whether that is personal trainers, whether that's like, um, you know, anything anyone who you're working with who's approached you who who wants to partner with you they will have other contacts and my feeling and thought in all of life is that there's currency in kindness and ultimately if you are kind and you're accommodating and you help then you will get more contracts through word of mouth so one of the biggest contracts I have at the moment which is a product development contract um, I got through a friend of mine who's a personal trainer and he they said do you know anyone in the nutrition world and he said, yes, I know this dietitian and we'd done Tough Mudder together, just a social friend. And that's what, you know, one thing led to another. And now through that contract, I've got another contract and through that contract, there'll mm. be, there's another one on the horizon. So it's that kind of snowball effect um, of trying to be as flexible and accommodating as you can, where you can, doing as much as you can to support people in what they're doing and being an enthusiastic. Um, and I think that that is how you end up with these things snowballing in a natural way rather than you having to reach out too much for things mm-hmm. and in terms of the product development that you're doing mm-hmm. um obviously you don't have to name brands that you're working with but what what are those sorts of products are they um food products are they nutritional supplements are they vitamins probiotics so vitamins and probiotics primarily um is what i've got into which i love and so the process would be sort of understanding who their target market is 
and then trying to figure out what that nutritional, what their sort of dietary patterns are like of that target market and what they might be lacking, what things they're interested in and trying to support them in the best way that you can. That's the ideal way around. Companies do sometimes approach and say, um, we've got this vitamin, can you make it fit in with a, this market? And you can do that, but going backwards is never the right way of doing things. Um, also, there's I'm doing some work in, with probiotic development, understanding which strains might be best for which exact um, target market, what they're looking for, what they're trying to achieve, which is early um, and not necessarily amazingly evidence based, but it's exciting. And certainly, you know, psychobiotics is an exciting area. Um, in Canada, they've licensed probiotic strains for treatment of things like depression. So, you know, we're getting there. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. And as dietitians, we're, of course, tightly regulated with what we can and can't say and, and the sorts of brands that we can work with. So how do you apply the knowledge of those regulations to the work that you do and also um, which clients you decide to partner with? So um, for me, it's very much an individual decision and it's based on who I feel I would want to work with and who I would be proud to say this is a company that I've worked with. Um, we know that there are dietitians out there who will partner with any and every brand to take money and, you know, we'll be sat on BBC Breakfast one morning talking about the dangers of unfortified plant milk and then advertising it on their Instagram the next day. Monster energy drinks, are you not allowed to have them for children? But I'm going to advertise and take money from them on my Instagram. That's not a way that I want to go. That's not a way that I feel dietitians should be encouraged to go, but there's a market there. Um... I wouldn't work with a company that I don't feel that I would be proud to say this is who I've worked with and to show off about working with them. But sometimes we have to make decisions that are commercial decisions and financial decisions that um, don't aren't necessarily ones that we would make from an ethical perspective. And I, you know, I understand that and I respect that. And I think in general in the profession we have perhaps been a bit hesitant with getting involved with any brands um, because there's a bit of confusion about sort of what the regulation is and what we can and can't do. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually spoke to the British Dietetic Association recently and it was interesting to learn that the myth that dietitians need to always rec- uh, recommend two or three brands when, with a patient is actually an incorrect myth. You just need to be confident in the brand that you're working with and be able to support any advice you're giving with good evidence. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the message that we were given when I was working in the NHS was that if there's only one product that fits that bill, then that's OK. You can recommend it. Um, I now straddle a slightly challenging uh, new thing for dietitians, I guess, which is that I have shares in some companies that I develop products with. So I have a very much commercial interest in recommending things and I'm yet to fully explore in my head how I will manage that because obviously I would struggle with the ethical side of saying you should buy these vitamins, they are amazing knowing that I get money from that mm. yeah I haven't kind of got there yet really in terms of how I manage that yeah and I think um it's worth mentioning that if anyone has a, a question about whether or not they can associate with a particular brand or they need some clarification then they can get in touch with the dietetic association or of course reach out to other freelance professionals yeah. such as Sophie who's, who's already doing work with brands absolutely and I also, just read your HCPC guidance really carefully. Mm. Just be really confident that you're not breaching anything in there. Really important. I think you know we are coming into a new world of commercialising dietetics, and it will come with it. You know, people will make mistakes, um, and you know that's that's kind of okay. As lo- my my opinion on it is, as long as you're not deliberately misleading the public, 
and you're not deliberately making a lot of money from deliberately misleading people, mm-hmm. then you kind of okay, you're on okay ground and you can defend yourself. But if you know that you're deliberately misleading people and saying things that you wouldn't stand by and that aren't evidence-based and you're making money from it, then you're on much, much, much more dangerous ground. Yeah, and of course, transparency is key. So if you are working with a brand and you're sharing that content on social media, presumably you should be transparent about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I don't do that and I don't think I will. Um... But there's plenty who are who are doing it, and yeah, I think absolutely. there's um, the the ASA have some some guidelines and regulations if you do work with brands on what what you can and cannot do, particularly on social media. Yeah, interesting world. Yeah. So um, you've mentioned earlier about some of this unregulated nutrition advice, particularly from um, nutritional therapists or influencers, Instagram mm-hmm. gurus. Um, you've actually taken quite an interesting slant on this, and you've you feel that it's better to collaborate and work with people even if they're getting some of their nutrition advice wrong and helping to steer them in the right direction can you maybe give some examples of when you've done that and explain why you think it's so important sure so I think my general philosophy about all these things is if you've got a seat at the table you can make a difference and you can have a voice but if you try to act like it's not happening or you ignore it or you walk away from it then you have no voice if you alienate people and make them cross with you and make them feel um that you've disrespected them they're never going to respect you so in general so an example would be there's a personal trainer who's got a huge profile online and has a very very successful online business and he'd said some things that i sort of fundamentally disagreed with on his instagram stories and i know that he collaborates with some people who are sort of on the periphery of my social media network in terms of healthcare professionals i guess So I dropped him a message and I just said, look, um, I feel like perhaps you could have approached this differently. And I wondered whether you thought about it from this angle and this angle. And what came of that was that him and I generated some content together, which was really great for me. um, And I hope good for him and some of the people that he um, is sharing his information with. And I think we, you know, certainly with nutritionists working at King's, you know, work with some of the most incredible nutrition researchers who are nutritionists. And I think dietitians historically have had this real snobbery about, oh, you're not a dietitian, I'm sorry, <laughs> you don't have a voice. Nutritionists, registered nutritionists who've done a nutrition degree and maybe even a master's and whatever else in nutrition are incredibly well-educated people whose opinion should and, and you know stance should be uh, very much respected. I think the space that we struggle with a little bit more is the nutritional therapist space. And I definitely alienate them with my content and the things that I share unintentionally because I do think actually um, there's a space there's space for everybody. Nutrition is broad and there's lots of different reasons why people want nutrition advice. And nutritional therapists are, for me, very much in the alternative therapy field, which is a popular and field that people are very interested in. I don't really want to see people in my clinic who just want to lose five pounds or who just want more energy or to improve their wellness like that's not tangible things that I can deliver on necessarily um, without compromising a long way on what I feel is right in terms of my practice so there's space for everybody in our market and I think we need to kind of be a bit more um, open-minded about those kinds of things really mm-hmm. and with more people particularly the general public turning their attention towards nutrition and wellness and things how can the registered dietitians and our profession in general move forward and drive meaningful change? 
my opinion is that we need to consider ourselves to be consultants in our specific areas of interest. So whatever your thing is that's your thing that you've got experience in or you've done some research in or whatever you what space you want to own, own it and be a specialist in that. Um, remain on the evidence-based line. I think that anyone who's sort of calling themselves plant-based this or paleo that is treading, you know, is already admitted that they've been that they're polarized in terms of their opinion and they're unlikely to give good quality advice which is of course the boring stuff and that that balance and health lies in the middle of all of this polarization um but i feel that if we own our medical nutrition space so if we say uh anyone who has a medical condition that they would see their doctor for they need to see a dietitian if they want to talk about the nutrition related to that if we own that space and we say this is what we do and this is how we're different from other people and we try not to do some of the stuff that I would call controversially call dinner lady dietetics which is like eat your five a day drink more water have less caffeine these kinds of things that actually everyone knows and everyone can google if we try and take up some space that's specialist we share our specialist knowledge and we show ourselves to be the credible people in our profession in the nutrition space then I think we've got some power um while we continue to try and sort of take up every space in nutrition then i'm not sure that we're gonna really grow as a as a voice on social media in the same way as we we could potentially does that answer your question yeah and i think i've noticed that on social media that a lot of dietitians are niching down and recognizing what their specialist area is and actually i think that's quite well received by the public because they see them as a figure of authority or credibility in that area. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I lose followers all the time that I post about stoma bags and colorectal stuff and poo problems, but it's what I care about and it's what I do. And for, you know, for every five followers who wanted me to post a recipe about quinoa, I might gain two who, um, you know, really need some help. And I'm very happy to be in that space. So um, I think that's given a great overview of, of the work that you're doing in, in the freelance um arena and I just want to ask you now what's been your biggest lesson learned since you've been working in the field of dietetics um what's been my biggest lesson I think my the thing that I feel most passionate about I guess is is coming up through dietetics and, and women you know dietetics is still a very female dominated profession women can uh, and in my experience do often try and block out their space and defend their space and be a bit protective of their space in a way that um, I think for a long time has uh, kept us down as a profession, actually. And in my opinion, if you do well, Harriet, you know, I've been lucky enough to do some mentoring with you and support you in your career and I've loved it. And the better you do, the more people know what dietitians do and the more space there is for all of us. And I feel the same way about everything that I do so anyone who is something about leaving the door open for you and not being defensive of your space so giving advice helping people um you know everywhere that dietitians do well we all win and if we can be less territorial and less defensive and more open and more honest and more sharing with what we're doing and give other people opportunities I think we all win the louder the voice of the collective dietitian is, the louder all of our individual voices are, and we can all win from that. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of the time, dietetics can be very catty and very 
or difficult fashion to operate in and I found that very difficult over the years and I do my best try to not engage in any of that stuff which mm-hmm. I think is important for me as an individual I think that's an important message it's it's uh, about lifting each other up rather than putting each other down yeah. and I think particularly we both work in the freelance sector recognizing there are plenty of opportunities out there for everyone and it's not a rat race and I know Sophie and I we've worked together on some projects before and shared work between um, one another and I think um, that message is so important especially in a small profession such as Mm. dietetics yeah and we all have different skills my you know you have some amazing skills in that really detailed like detailed work and that concentrated focus work which I, like my brain just doesn't work like that like I have other skills in different areas that I can share and that I know I feel confident in but that's we don't share the same skills and nobody shares the same skills mm. with everybody mm. like I was saying about me and Nicola earlier mm. you know I think it's about owning your space and feeling confident that you you know your time will come and your space is there one of the things I guess I'm quite keen to say is that I get lots of messages from student dietitians primarily saying things like um oh how did you get on tv or how did you do this and I want to work in the media and I want to you know have clinics on Harley Street whatever else and I just sort of think uh, well one I didn't plan this this is just sort of what's happened to me and I'm very grateful and very privileged to be where I am but um two get some expertise you know spend some time learn your space understand who you are what you can bring what your individual thing is and what you're what you're offering I didn't ever think that I would be going on TV and that wasn't ever one of my plans but that's what's been happening and I feel lucky that it has and it's great for business but ultimately that never ha- that didn't happen until I'd been a dietitian for 12 years you know it's not something that uh, some people do it straight away and that's great and that works for them maybe but in, in my my life if I'd have been I mean if, even if I read some of the blog posts that I wrote five years ago I'm cringing you know <laughs> I think we developed so quickly as a professional as an individuals and if we rush and to get somewhere often we might get things wrong and you know you might need to enjoy the journey and you need to take time you need to be patient and learn your learn your field learn your craft and then bring your voice but certainly you know on social media and things you can build that up really early on because there's space for it so if any of our listeners have been um persuaded having listened to you that maybe pursuing a career in freelance dietetics is for them do you have perhaps two or three top tips for for what they should be thinking about next so I would say um don't quit your job straight away (laughs) build some stuff up and be prepared to make some sacrifices time-wise um get some contacts pull in all your contacts tell people what you're doing share your messages be confident and know that you you know shouting about what you're trying to do people will want to help you if you go about it in the right way so um tell people what you want to do but don't quit your job straight away try and drop down to two days a week three days a week whatever works but try and keep your hand in in terms of financial security because that will help you to stop stop you from having to make decisions that you perhaps don't want to make um so patience i think is like the main thing Mm. be patient and be willing to work hard Mm. and seek out opportunities they won't always come straight to you yeah for sure for sure you know network on linkedin linkedin is great for nutrition professionals there's lots of people on there doing lots of good stuff create content generate content for yourself and for your pages um you can start blogs and things like that which just means you've got this great back catalogue of work that you've done that you can share and that people can see and they can see your style and all that kind of stuff which works really well yeah Mm -hmm. so um we're just going to end with a couple of quick fire questions sophie so um what has been your biggest achievement to date that can be professionally or personally Mm, great question um 
I feel very proud of what we're doing with City Dietitians. I didn't ever think that I was capable of running a business and supporting myself financially for the last 10 months or however long it's been. So I feel very proud of where we are and where I am right now, to be honest. And um, yeah, every contract I get, every patient that comes from far away to come and see me, I feel like that's a huge achievement and I feel very proud of what I'm doing. Mm, you've had some great achievements in a short space of time, which is really encouraging yeah, to feels hear. Like it. And of course, being in the Dietitian Cafe, we have to ask you, what would be your last ever meal? So I am a massive foodie. I love all food. So trying to decide what I would want as my last meal is really hard for me. I am one of those people that I can't, I can't think of anything worse than like meal prepping and thinking, oh, it's making fish on a Sunday that I'm going to eat on Wednesday. I want to eat what I want to eat there and then. So I think it's very difficult. I'll tell you some, I've eaten some really delicious food recently um, at a restaurant in Islington called Black Axe. Mm. Um, and controversially, they do this incredible bone marrow dish, which just blew my mind. And I'm not sure that I was massively into bone marrow before that. Not bone marrow broth off of Instagram. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, bone marrow out of the bone. <laughs> and so I, I'm not normally someone who eats can eat breakfast or anything in the morning at all. But I woke up the next morning thinking about this bone marrow. Like, I could really eat that now. So I definitely that would definitely be on my list. Um, I guess, I don't know. I think for me, food is also part of being... Um, food is a shared thing. You know, sharing and enjoying food is a, is a social thing. It's part of my quality of life in lots of different ways. So it would depend on who I was with and what we were doing and where we were. So I can't decide. I'm sorry. I can't help you. We'll, we'll let you off today. It's, uh, it's a difficult decision for any dietitian to make. I yeah. Think. If you ask me, what do I want to eat right now? It's slightly easier. But what do I want to eat? What do you want to eat right now? Oh, I don't know. I'm sitting here at what quarter past twelve. It's nearly lunchtime. Quarter past twelve. It's nearly lunchtime. I don't know. When I'm busy, I'm like my head's just in the game. It's difficult to even remember eating when you're freelance, isn't it? And yeah. you're just constantly on the go. Yeah, for sure. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Sophie. You're welcome. And thank you for our listeners. Um, stay tuned for our next episode of Dietitian Cafe, which will be coming soon.